interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. This is a good question. Um, oh. Yeah, David just told me that and I, I uh, forgot in this, uh, as soon as the question. So the question was, I said in the talk that there's a... Uh, there's often been a tendency for the pro-life movement to speak in terms of justice, about, um, about overturning Roe versus Wade in the interests of justice and, and justice for the un- unborn. The obvious alternative, I mean, one answer would be, from a, for, from a Christian perspective, what, um, what view of, of abortion is most consistent with Scripture would be your starting point. But, um, but in terms of the larger society, what arguments might be, um, people might be more willing to hear or might, more, might be more consistent with what I'm calling a Sermon on the Mount ethics. The obvious one, and this isn't entirely absent from the, from the pro-life arguments, uh, I should, should quickly say, is an argument about protection, about protecting, uh, protecting the child, protecting a child who does not have a defender. And that's the argument that, in my view, fits into the pattern that William Jennings Bryan started. One of the things that I've really been struck by reading a lot of William Jennings Bryan's writing is his view of the role of the law was unabashedly paternalistic or parentalistic, that the law should be protecting people who can't otherwise protect themselves. Now, in law schools these days, parentalism is a dirty word. The idea that the law should protect anybody is seen as not a proper role for the law. I disagree with that. And, and um, I think it's very important to ask the question whether the law you're trying to pass is going to achieve the objective you think that it's going to achieve. That's the problem with the pro-life movement, in my view, that it's often um, gone after things that were counterproductive. In my view, um, the going after a ban on partial abortion, partial birth abortion was exactly the right thing to do. There is something close to a consensus um, in this country against partial birth abortion. There is not something close to a consensus, even in, in South Dakota, that... Um, that all abortion should be be outlawed. But the, the kinds of arguments I find more compelling are more parentalistic kinds of arguments that, that we're trying to protect unborn babies in the same way William Jennings Bryan was trying to protect mother's young sons against gamblers and against um, huge corporations that would take advantage of them. Those are the arguments I find compelling. And they, they are there. They certainly are in the movement. But I'm struck about how much of particularly evangelical arguments generally have a real justice theme to them. This is, this is right and wrong. Um, the other example is the one I gave in the, the, um, the punishment of criminals arguments. Those are primarily arguments about justice. And I don't think they should be excluded, but I think we, we evangelicals, speaking as an evangelical, have tended to overemphasize them. So the question, I'll... I'll uh, repeat it for the audio. The question is, what in the world are you saying? (laughs) Um, uh, So the question is, is what I'm saying that 
evangelical, the pro-life movement should focus less on the law and more on morality, on changing people's hearts. The short answer to that is yes, but the longer answer to that is historically, one of the things we see, and this is something that uh, Bill Stuntz and I talk about in this one of these two articles back there, what you find is that on a, on a hotly debated moral issue like abortion, like gay rights, like prohibition, like gambling, very frequently the side that has the law on its side loses the argument of public opinion so what, or, is, or ends up losing the argument of public um, of the sort of the hearts of the public. And, and an example of this in the abortion context is um, in a weird way, Roe versus Wade was the was the best thing that ever happened to the pro-life movement. Um, having abortion made illegal catapulted the, the pro-life movement into um, not into existence, but into prominence. And a lot of what has happened since then, abortions have gone down. I mean, they're still unbelievably high, but they've gone down. There is something like a consensus against late term abortions, particularly partial birth abortions. That might not have been possible if the law were um, where abortion is legal. The, where the laws were going was in the other direction. It was, it was going in the, pro, in the Roe versus Wade direction. And, and um, so they're, they're, uh, this is not going to clarify. It's going to make more confusing. The argument here that I'm making here, we make kind of two different kinds of arguments about be careful what you wish for with the law. Two kinds of arguments about the dangers of using the law to achieve moral objectives. The argument with abortion, as with um, this would also hold true in an area like gay rights, is that when you have a very closely divided country on a moral issue and one, uses, one side successfully uses the law to try to end the debate, what often happens is you get a backlash against, um, against the effect of the law. So that before Roe versus Wade, the stories that you saw in magazines, when, when abortion was illegal, the stories in magazines were back, about back alley abortions. Um, in the years since Roe versus Wade, now that, now that abortion is legal, there's a lot less discussion of back alley abortions and, and things like that, a lot more discussion of things like the atrocity of partial birth abortion. So the one point we make about law is it's dangerous to try to use law to settle a closely divided moral issue. You often get a backlash. The other argument is that very frequently on these kinds of issues, you end up passing a law that can't possibly be systematically enforced. So with prohibition, there's no way that law enforcers were going to be able to um, prevent people from drinking. You could not systematically enforce that law. And what invariably happens because law enforcers are sinful, just as the citizens who are targeted by the law are sinful, is overly broad laws, laws that can't be systematically enforced, end up getting enforced in a discriminatory manner. And, and to use an example of this that I've used in my writing, because I... Uh, you won't think it's clever, but I think it, I thought it was clever when I wrote it was that during prohibition, if you were uh, a poor a a Italian or or Irish person on the Lower East Side in Manhattan and you were drinking a beer, um, there was a decent chance you might end up in jail. 
If you were an upper class person on the upper on the Upper East Side, it was a lot less likely that you would end up in jail than you would end up in an F. Scott Fitzgerald novel. Um, and that's that's kind of the way um, I thought it was clever. Um, <laughs> And since I don't have very many things that are clever, I have to reuse it over and over. But the idea is that often in, on these moral issues, you end up with a law that can't be systematically enforced. And what invariably happens is it's enforced in a discriminatory fashion and the law ends up corroding the moral that it's trying to reinforce. So there are two different, uh, there are two different kinds of problems that I see with, with, um, with overuse of the law. No. So the question is, um, I missed the first part, but it's a question that with a law, the effect of it, if you put a law in, fa in place, we're going to hate it and do the opposite. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about two, kind, two problematic kinds of laws. One is a law that, is, um, that aims at behavior that can't be systematically policed. Um, and so... Um, to, to, to use two examples, prohibiting murder is perfectly appropriate. You know, a moral, murder is immoral. We systematically try to police mur murder. You don't ordinarily, well, actually, I shouldn't, I shouldn't make this point too strongly, but we're much less worried about discriminatory enforcement in the first instance, at least, of murder than we are with, other, with, um, with something like a gambling prohibition or a drinking prohibition, which just can't possibly be systematically enforced. So the, the point there is not that law should never be used or that, that law has no role in moral issues, the point is that when you, when you think about passing a law, think about whether this is a law that could plausibly be systematically enforced. Think about the fact that the people who are making this law and who are enforcing it are sinners themselves, just like the people who are subject to the, um, to the law. All too often, we're so anxious to pass a law because we see behavior that seems terrible that we don't think about the, um, the consequences, which invariably are, are discrimination. And this, this is particularly true in the criminal law. Um, there is, and there, there's a whole political argument as to why it's almost impossible for a politician to vote no on a criminal law. And there's just this ratcheting effect that whenever, whenever something seems bad, we pass a criminal law. And that, that's not the way to, to set up a, a criminal law system. No, I don't think I said that. So the, the question is, um, did I advocate laws that encourage immoral behavior? No, um, I advocated, um, I, I see what you, so the, I think what the question is, I'm saying that it's dangerous to try to turn every sin into a crime, that it's dangerous to try to police every form of immoral behavior. But I also said that when we're thinking about what the law should do, we should um, focus on we should, should be particularly concerned about laws that cause people to behave immorally or badly. Those sound like the same thing, the, that, uh, the argument that we shouldn't use law for everything that's immoral, 
um, we should you or we sh- we should be concerned about laws that seem to encourage immoral behavior. Now, when I said that, I said that very quickly at the end, hoping that nobody would pick up on it. Uh, so that, but also maybe hoping that someone would pick up on it, so I could elaborate on it a little bit. I was uh, when I when I say that when I say when we're thinking about what we should be doing with the law, one of the things that we should we should do is look at the laws that out are out there and ask, are they encouraging immoral behavior or misbehavior? And what I was thinking of in particular is one of my own specialties, which is corporate law, business law, corporate law and bankruptcy. The corporate scandals a few years ago, um, a fair amount of the misbehavior at places like Enron and WorldCom was encouraged by the legal framework, that there were several legal rules in place that gave people an incentive to behave badly. And so what, what I'm saying here is that one thing we should do when we're thinking about the proper, uh, the proper role of law is, is not say never use the law at all, but what, one thing we should do is look for areas where the, where the law is having a pernicious effect and change that. And, and uh, if anybody were interested, and I could give you some examples in the corporate area of rules that were encouraged, encouraging people to behave immorally. So... It is. And um, I've been mostly talking about so the, the point was corporate law seems very different from criminal law in this respect. Most of what I have been talking about and talked about through the talk was criminal law, criminal prohibitions. I think you're exactly right that non-criminal regulation is different. It has some of the same problems, um, but it is a little bit different, and you have to think about it a little bit different. I mean, one of the the good things about non-criminal regulation is that bad laws are less likely to stick around than they are in the criminal law. In the criminal law, if you have a bad criminal law, it never goes away. Um, In the civil law... If you have a bad regulation about somebody, about something, there's somebody who's going to be hurt by that regulation and they're going to fight against it. And so um, civil regulations don't have quite the same problems as criminal regulations, but there there still is a problem of, of what I would see as overusing the law. Exactly. The point I was making at the end when I said things that we should think about is changing laws that encourage immoral behavior, that that cause people to act badly. And um, we should focus on, in my view, on laws that promote relationship. In my view, with the civil rights movement, there are lots of theories about what the civil rights movement did. Lots of misconceptions, in my view. One one misconception was that it was all about law, um, which is not true. Um, But the other is that there were these sort of sweeping laws of the kind that I've been complaining about, laws that nobody would enforce. Nothing could be further from the uh, from the truth. The main civil rights laws were laws that were designed to be enforced, to designed to make it possible for blacks to vote in um, in the South. They were designed to promote social relationship. Um, those are the, the kinds of laws that I think, um, even in a paternalistic kind of way, make make a lot of sense. I'm um, um, oh, I just throw in one last thing. You started out by saying, by by referring to laws that allow immoral behavior. My theory suggests that we have to do that. I mean, we have to have a legal system that allows a lot of immoral behavior because we're going to make things worse if we try to police it with the law. 
So um, that's a point about what the law should not be doing rather than it. I think that's so the point is that the founding fathers emphasized a similar point about not over policing morality, not having too much moral regulation. Or another way to put it is um, what they would have described as freedom or freedom of conscience was critical to the founding fathers. And I do think that is consistent with the kinds of arguments I'm making. So the question is, are there other portions of, and you said Christ's teaching as opposed to scripture um, generally that I'm contemplating um, right, working with in this book? So is this book going to be focused entirely on the Sermon on the Mount or will it focus on, will it bring in other teachings as well? The short answer is it will bring in other teachings. It's going to focus, uh, at least as I conceive it now, heavily on the Sermon on the Mount. In my other writing, I have talked about other aspects of scripture. So, for instance, in making some of the arguments I've been making here in the, in the, argu in the article with Bill Stuntz, we started out by saying, if you were to start with scripture and ask the question, what principles would be key principles for understanding what we should be doing with the secular law, what the, sec the role of the secular law ought to be. What would those principles be? And the two principles that we start with and develop there are first that we're all made in the image of God so that um, laws should be applied in the same way in my neighborhood that they're applied in your neighborhood, the same way here as they're applied in my city, um, etc. The second is that we are all sinners, um, that uh, there is no one righteous, not one, as Paul says, quoting from the Psalms. Starting from those two principles, I believe, we believe that you develop an approach to law that looks a lot like what we in this country call the rule of law. That what the law ought to do is it ought to be as objective as possible. It ought to focus on people's actions primarily, not the conditions of their heart, because law enforcers don't know the condition of your heart. That it ought to be defined in advance, that it ought to be applied in the, uh, the same way in different places. All of those virtues we associate with the rule of law, in our view, come straight out of Scripture. And the kinds of arguments I've been making about the problems with the law are arguments that in many respects American law, including provisions that evangelicals and other Christians have pushed for, are flatly inconsistent with the rule of law, that they do not honor rule of law virtue. So in, in this other work, we've talked about other principles. I'm sure I will, um, I'll talk about other scripture in this book, although candidly I should say I believe that the entire Bible is in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is just astonishing. And, and I think, you know, you can't talk about the Sermon on the Mount without going into the rest of the Bible, but it's also true that the entire Bible is in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the way we're supposed to live, who Christ is, where Christ came from, what salvation is, I mean, it's all in the Sermon on the Mount. Not, not that I'm a, a promoter of the Sermon on the Mount or anything. Um, 